Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this sanctuary. Uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie. It is my joy to be one of the pastors uh, here at Crosspoint. It's my joy to open up the scriptures with you all. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into uh, your living room or wherever you happen to be tuning in from. Uh, as we get into things this morning, we are going to be continuing our series called Peaks and Valleys as we look at various Psalms together throughout the summer. Uh, we've got this week and, and the next and we'll have our fall kickoff on the 20th as we begin a new series. But uh, before getting into the text this morning, um, there's this rumor going around uh, that there's this thing called school that's getting ready to, to happen. Um, and so for some of the students in here, you might be like, why are you talking about this? Come on, man. Like I'm still on summer break. Just stop. But uh, we are so grateful for so many, even particularly here in our, our congregation and in our family that, that serve um, in a variety of roles. Some are our teachers, uh, some are school administrators, some work as school staff in a variety of, of positions. Some of you homeschool your children and you're the primary teacher and educator. I mean, there, there are so many people involved in the role and the work of education. And so we want to to uh, pray for our, our teachers, our administrators, all of the, those folks. Um, uh, but by, by show of hands here too, as well, if you are like work for a school or you homeschool your children, right? Like in some way you're involved in the educational process. Let you just raise your hand for just a moment. I know we've got a few people that, that are in here as well. So let's hear for these folks this morning. And so I um, found a, a great, this liturgy, uh, a prayer for uh, for teachers and school staff. Uh, I want to just read this um, just as a, a prayer to sort of just mark as we get into this uh, this new season. Um, please know that in the, the liturgy, it speaks, it'll say teachers. But if you're like, hey, I work at a school, but I'm not in a teacher role, like this includes you, okay? Um, I just was like, how, how do I adjust the liturgy? Am I allowed to do that? I didn't know. So we're just going to go with uh, teachers, but it includes all of you. So if you would bow your heads and join me um, in this, this prayer. Lord, we come before you um, and we thank you uh, for those that, that serve so faithfully, serve uh, the students, serve the, the next generations um, by giving uh, their time and energy, sacrificing um, in, uh, in education. Um, and so, Lord, um, we pray these things over our, our educators, um, those that are involved in the, the school system, um, God, those that are involved in education in the private school sector, the public school, God, uh, those that are homeschool, whatever it looks like. Um, so we would pray these things, Lord. We pray for one, we pray for the, the confidence to relay the truth in love. And so Jesus, grant teachers the grace to be wise. Lord, we pray for the ability to be always, always to be present to the student that is in front of them. And so Jesus, grant teachers the grace to be in it. We pray for the capacity to deal with the chaos that a classroom can bring. And so Jesus, grant teachers the grace to be patient. We pray for the knowledge that their work that they would know that their work is critically important and valuable. And so Jesus, grant teachers the grace to know it. We pray for the endurance to continue even when it appears that their efforts are meaningless. Jesus, grant teachers the grace to persevere. We pray for the virtue of faith to be communicated through their words. And so Jesus, grant teachers the grace to be disciples. And for the virtue of hope to be instilled in their students through their witness, Jesus, grant teachers the grace to trust in you. For the virtue of love to be experienced by their students, Jesus, grant teachers the grace to communicate your heart. 
So Jesus, you are the teacher of all teachers. Grant that all schools will be filled with your presence and come to understand that all truth is ultimately seated on your throne. And may every student come to greater knowledge this year and come to see you as a real living person who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. We pray these things in Jesus' good name, amen. Well, again, thank you to all who serve in this way. Students, we are praying for you as well as you uh, return to the the classroom um, and begin all that this upcoming year has for you, praying that it is a a great experience. Friends, if you would take your Bibles now and turn to Psalm 24 um, as we continue in this series called Peaks and Valleys. The reality is that life has a lot of things to celebrate. They're the mountaintop experiences, but there also are the valleys. There's the wilderness, there's the desert, there's the valley experiences, and those shape us, in fact, probably in more unique ways than even the mountaintops do. And so I wanna invite you to to join me in looking at this Psalm. Um, If you brought a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, There are Bibles in the pews this morning. You can also scan the QR code in the pew. Um, It'll bring up a thing that says, a menu that says sermon notes, and you can uh, click there and the text will be listed as well as space to take notes. If you're able, would you please stand as I read God's word this morning? Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. For such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Verse seven, to lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So friends, as we look at this, this particular Psalm speaks of this theme of kingship, all right? It speaks of the Lord as our King and what he has accomplished. It speaks of a God who fights for you, who goes into battle for you. That is, we're going to see is one who goes against the chaos of this world. And I know enough about your life, all right? Because I assume it's somewhat like my life in many ways that we are all facing circumstances that feel chaotic. We feel like we might be drowning. There might be things where I don't know how this is going to resolve. And yet there's these promises embedded in this Psalm about a God who is victorious. And so what I wanna begin by doing is looking at the first couple of verses where this Psalm speaks of the victory of our King. Then we're gonna look at, okay, if this King is victorious, if he is who he says he is, What's our response? We're gonna look at the the subjects of the the king, like who you and I are now in relationship to this king. And lastly, we'll look in verses seven to 10 about what it looks like as this king enters to be welcoming as we look at the arrival of this king. But verses one to two begin this way. They speak of the victory of our king. And so I wanna point out a couple of things that I think at first glance, we may read this and be encouraged in some ways, but may not get that victory sort of motif, that sort of theme. It, It begins this way. The earth is the Lord's 
and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So if we stop at, at verse one, right, we, we see right away that it's just speaking to, it's like the psalmist is just starting and saying, listen, everything that has been made, it belongs to God. That you are not your own, you belong to God, all right? This space, this sanctuary belongs to the Lord. The fields out there belong to the Lord. The oceans belong to the Lord. The mountains belong to the Lord. The galaxies belong to the Lord. And then everything at the subatomic level belongs to the Lord. So from the smallest of things, to the largest of things, like everything belongs to the Lord. Everything is here by his purpose, by his design. And the psalmist wants us to know like nothing is by accident, all right? That everything that's contained in this world, the things that we can even slightly comprehend. It's like, yep, the Lord made that. It belongs to him, all right? And in some ways, though that's amazing, we might expect that. Like, okay, yeah, that, that kind of make, makes sense. But what does that have to do with victory? Well, what's so interesting is verse two says this, for he has founded it, this world, that all belongs to him, says he has founded it. It's like the image of building a home. Like he has laid the foundation, He's laid the foundation upon the seas. And then as the Psalms do, this sort of Hebrew poetry, the next line is just reinforcing that same idea, just using slightly different language, right? And established it. So again, it's foundational language, established it upon the rivers. Well, what in the world does this have to do with victory? And how does this inform your life and my life? Why is the Psalmist speaking of the oceans, the seas, the, the rivers? What he's communicating is something that would have meant something just sort of inherently to the people a couple thousand years ago when this was written. Because to the people of the ancient times and that part of the world and the ancient Near East, all right, um, they would have understood and the common belief would have been that the waters of the sea or the tumultuous waters of the rivers, that those places that one would describe as the chaotic waters, that it's in those places that the evil spirits reside. It's in those places, like in the depths of the sea, that the common belief amongst varying religions would have just been that idea that, oh, like you gotta stay away from that. This is why I go to the mountains and not the beach. No, I'm just kidding, all right? But um, this idea, right, like, oh, it's in those waters. Like, do you remember the, the scene where Jesus um, is getting ready to, to heal. This man is possessed, not by just one demon, but by literally like all of these demons, this legion, right? And the demons kind of barter with him. And they're like, well, if you're gonna cast us out, like at least allow us to go into the herd of pigs. You remember that, that story? If you're familiar with some of the, the life of Jesus. And so he cast them out and the demons flee from this man and they go into the herd of pigs. And immediately, you know what happens, right? The, the pigs like take off, and they literally run off a cliff and where do they go? It tells us they go down into the sea. And for the ancient people, they would have been, well, yeah, of course, that's where the demons go. They go down to the chaotic waters. And so imagine growing up in a world where that's how you thought of these things. And then the psalmist breaks out what really is this victory chant and says, oh, but our God has founded this whole world. He's laid the foundation upon the sea, which means he's sovereign over it that the chaotic waters, the evil spirits, those forces of evil, they cannot come against our God. That you have nothing to fear. It's this image of something that is solid. It's rock solid. It is not like teetering and tottering. No, no, no. It's this foundation that has been laid. He has founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. 
And so as this really what Psalm 24 is in many ways is kind of like this liturgy of a, a community of people coming together and would have been engaged at certain times of the, of the kind of Jewish calendar to in reciting of this, it's this reminder, oh, really what you have here is this victory chant where you're moving from chaos, from the waters of chaos to the ordered cosmos. It's like Genesis 1 again, and we're gonna look at that more in our next series, but just to a little sneak peek, how does that begin? The spirit of God was hovering over what? Not the established earth, or no, over the waters. It's a way to say God is up there over the chaotic waters and he begins to fashion from the chaos, this ordered cosmos, because he's making a home for himself. He's making a home for us. He's got these particular plans and friends. This is a victory chance. All right, so you think of like a stadium being filled, right? And if you're like, yeah, I'm with the Seminoles and you're doing your, your victory chop thing. If you're like, no, no, that's not what I do. You're like Gator and you're doing the Gator chomp, right? Or if you're a Michigan fan and you have no victory, right? Like, I, I don't know. But like the reality is like, just picture like a stadium filled with people. And the reality is like, they're all engaged and like, yes, this is our God. We need to be reminded of this because the chaotic forces, we still feel that and we doubt if God is with us. Is he good? Is he at work? But friends, he has made, he's ordered this cosmos. There's a quote I love from an, an author. That's a book by an interesting title. It's called Notes from the tilt world right? And you kind of feel that, that sometimes like spinning around and this chaos, if you remember that, like that kind of playground item. His name's Andy Wilson. And in this particular quote, he speaks of, can we just stop for a moment? and think about like all that's happening uh, around us, that we don't just like, just get flung out into the galaxy somewhere, like that God is sovereign, even as we're on this sphere right now, like hurtling through the universe. Listen to this quote, just to be clear, he says, I live on a near perfect sphere, hurtling through space at around 67,000 miles per hour. That's Mach 86 to pilots. And of course, this sphere of mine is also spinning while it hurdles. So tack on an extra thousand miles per hour at the fat parts. And it's all tucked into this giant hurricane of stars. Yes, it can be freaky. And once a month or so, my wife will find me lying in the lawn, burrowing white knuckles into the grass, trying not to fly away. But most of the time, I manage to keep my balance despite the speed. And I don't have to hold on with anything more than my toes. Now, that insight in this sort of poetic way of writing it, it's just, it should astound us, right? Like, whoa, like right now you're still in your pew, right? I'm not falling over up here. I mean, like these things are like, God is ordered things. And so the psalmist is like, this is a victory chant, man. Like let's join in. And if this is true, if we have a God who has conquered the chaos and he is conquering the, the chaos, then what's to be our response? Because this Psalm, one of the things we have to see is, Yes, we are looking at them in, like in isolation, but there also is some intentionality in how they're put together. And so though the numbering system wouldn't have, have been there when it was originally written, what we'd know to be Psalm 23, and now we're reading Psalm 24. As you heard Psalm 23 preached a few weeks ago, it ends, I'll just read it to you, it ends with verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like there's this promise that we will be in the presence of God. And you know the imagery in Psalm 23, right? That he's the good shepherd. And the reason these promises, like that we can take them to the bank, so to speak, Psalm 24 then is picking up those themes and saying, oh, the reason this is going to happen is because the Lord is our victorious King who has battled against the chaos and he has won. 
Chaos is a vanquished foe. So rejoice, let's rejoice together. And now let us look at what we're called to. So as this continues, we'll look at verses three to six about our response. What does it mean to be a subject of the king? And how does that inform your life and my life? So verse three starts where the psalmist saying, okay, if this is true, he's gonna pose a question. It's a very important question. It's a question that we all need to think through this morning. He asks in verse three, who shall ascend? Who will be able to ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in this holy place? Again, Hebrew poetry, the second line is just reinforcing what the first one said. It's not talking about two different places, but rather the hill of the Lord, the temple mount, to go up the hill of Jerusalem to the temple where the presence of God was. Who's gonna be able to go there? Who shall stand in his holy place? The psalmist is considering, okay, here's this God and we're made to be in his presence. That's what we're created for. It's what our hearts long for. And yet who can actually go there? Is it safe to go there? What does it take to be able to, to go there? In fact, what this psalm is doing is it is encouraging us, friends, and it's asking us to consider and the answers to these questions not to condemn us, but to rightly, beautifully, redemptively humble us. So let me just ask you a question like, have you been humbled lately? Perhaps you can think of ways that, that you have, um, right? Um, and, and how did you respond to that? Uh, um, I will share one little anecdote uh, with you, all right? Have I been humbled lately? Ah, as a matter of fact, I have. So let me share with you, okay? Um, uh, this past week, it was it was Wednesday. I've been trying um, since yeah, about February to like pay a little bit more attention to my health, uh, which means like trying to work out two or three times a week. I'm sure you've noticed, okay? Um, but um, uh, so trying to do more than just like go to Dunkin' Donuts, right? So trying to like do these things. And this past Wednesday, um, I'm going to this place with kind of these trainer classes kind of things. I'm there with, with this group um, and there's five or six uh, other people kind of during the, the lunch hour. I'm, I'm going there. It's just up, up the road from here. So I left the church and I went up there and I thought, okay, I'm just going to get this workout in. I'll shower and I'll come, come back. Three minutes of like the opening warm up, get through all, all of that, right? Make sure these 47 year old bones and joints are all like loosened up. And um, I kid you not, it's rep one of exercise one. All right. Um, and they, the instructor literally says, all right, uh, grab a couple of dumbbells. And there was like this workout, like kind of bench stepper thing. I don't even know what you call it, but you're supposed to step up on it. All right. Um, and literally here's the instruction. All right. It's very simple. We're going to start pretty easy. You just hold these way and you will start with the right leg. You start with the right leg. You step up on the, this thing, lift your left leg up and step back down. We're gonna do about 10 of those, right? Because it seems pretty easy. I'm like, yeah, hey, I can do this. I can do this motion, right? So I go and I, I, I grab, grab my weights. They didn't have the 200 pound dumbbells. So I went with 35s, right? Um, and, and so I, I, I'm there in, in this moment. And I kid you not, it is exercise one. Like I said, it's rep one. And I make it with my right foot up onto that, that step. And somehow that was about as far as my success went that day. Because as I went to plant my left foot, I still don't know exactly what happened. Um, I think I just kind of blacked out. I got distracted. I'm not sure. But all I knew, because I've experienced this having played basketball for a number of years, I'm like, oh, my ankle is 
being torn right now, right? Um, because as I must have caught the edge of my shoe with these extra weights, I just crumpled to the ground. And so all six foot three, six foot four of me up on this step is suddenly like falling to the ground. And it's one of those moments you're like, oh, this, yeah, okay, this is happening right now. Um, with these people, talking about being humbled, right? And I feel my left ankle just, I mean, as it rolls to the side and I'm just like, that's, well, that's gonna leave a mark. That is going to hurt. Fall on my backside, that's still sore. It's more information than you want, but I'm just letting you in, right? Um, and then to add insult to injury, I lost control of the 35 pound weight in my right hand and it fell through the air and it landed on my right foot. Um, and so all week, my kids are like, quit wearing sandals, cover that up. That is the grossest thing I've ever seen. Um, it literally is like this, it's black and blue. The toes are turning colors now. It's a whole thing. And in that, that moment, you think about like, humble yourself. Have you been humble this week? And as I'm there, just like crumpled in a, in a pile and they're running over and like, hey, are you okay? And I'm trying to be strong and everything in me just wants to be like, I just wanna cry right now, right? Like just having one of, one of those moments, not knowing how bad this is, is going to be, right? Literally having done Tuesday's my day of like initial sermon prep and studying, yeah, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? I literally had this picture in my mind, like running up there, right? Like go to ascend the hill of the Lord. And now I'm just crumpled on the ground, wondering if I'll even be able to drive home, right? So I got my compression ankle thing on this morning. Like, we're just trying to make it through, all right? I might need a stool here in a moment. But I tell you all of that, because that moment of being just completely humbled, like, no, like, I, I don't even think I can get up right now, all right? I can't continue this exercise. I can't continue this class. I'm not gonna be able to do it. In the spiritual sense, this Psalm is asking us to consider, hey, have you been rightly humbled? Look where the psalmist goes with this. He asked in verse three, who shall ascend? And then verse four, he says this, okay, you wanna ascend the hill of the Lord? Here's the qualifications. I will lay it out for you. I'm not trying to keep this a mystery. I'm just gonna lay it out for you as clearly as I can. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The idea there in verse four of clean hands would be a focus on the external. It literally is like, have you used your hands in any way to injure somebody else? Were they engaged in bloodshed? Were they, were they used in, in ways that would hurt somebody else? And perhaps most people would be able to like, oh no, my hands haven't been used in, in those ways. And we might just stop there, wanna stop there, but it, it says, well, clean hands, yeah, but what about a pure heart? So it's not just the external, but it's also the internal. Like you get to ascend the hill of the Lord. You get to be in the presence of God if your hands are clean and if your heart is actually pure, meaning that even the good things that you've done, you have done them for the glory of God, not for your name. Perfect, pure motivation. You can see where this humbles us pretty quickly, right? And then speaks of who does not lift up his soul to what is false, or perhaps as if you have like the NIV, it'll say does not lift up his soul like to an idol does not like worship a false God, does not elevate any of the good gifts of this world to a place of ultimate, like that's what I'm looking for, for my identity. And so in the ancient world, yeah, you're not worshiping the Baal, you're not worshiping, the, you know, these, these things, but like modern day, like you're not worshiping your career. You're not worshiping financial security. You're, you're not worshiping relationship, right? How well you are liked by somebody else or the approval of uh, other people. You're not looking to those things. At the end of the day, the person who gets to ascend the hill of the Lord is saying is, 
somebody who has purity and loyalty. So their actions are pure externally. They come from a completely pure place internally. And there's a loyalty. There's a faithfulness. There's a God, you are my God. You're the victorious King. I am your subject. I will not pursue the ways of the world. I will not give in to the lie of the enemy to make the story about me. I've got 100% full on covenantal faithfulness to you, my God. And if that's true, ascend the hill. But the reality, I think, as we look at that, we were like, we very quickly realized, okay, well then who can, or what are we to do with this? How, how do we deal with the fact that, that we don't have clean hands? We're not perfectly cleansed. We don't have these pure hearts, that we, we do engage in false worship. We do look to things outside of our relationship and our identity in Christ. And so we look to, to things thinking that will satisfy. And I think there's more that could be said, but I wanna highlight just a couple things this morning. I think in an attempt, because we so badly want to be in the presence of God, like we want to be able to ascend the hill. We want to, to be there that we resort to like, well, how can we control things so that we might be qualified or seemingly be qualified to ascend the hill? How do we get this cleansing? How do we deal with it? And so two things I wanna put before you, I think there's some like counterfeit ways through this, some false attempts at getting the cleansing that, that we know we need to have. Because if you and I show up, right, unclean, blood on our hands, right, impure hearts. Like if we don't show up white as snow, we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. It would literally destroy us. And yet we're made to be in the presence of God. So how is this to work? And I think one of the things we see a false attempt at cleansing is, well, let's just create this purity in our environment. So think, think about this for a moment. The idea with this is, can I just structure my world in such a way? If I could just get it just right, then I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I think I'd have purity of heart. I think I'd be loving to people. I could just get the right amount of sleep. I get the right nutrients. I, I get the right amount of workouts in. I keep stress at bay. I get the right amount of life hacks in, in place. Like I engage in these things. I can just get my environment just, just right. If I could just get it this way and if everybody could just sort of butt out and let me do my thing, right? Like if I could have that, I think it would be okay. Or if, if God in his grace has gifted you to be like, he's gifted you with the, the gift of children, all right? Like there's good godly desires that, that we have for them to make wise choices, right? To, we want them to be safe. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I don't see any parents like after church being like, hey, take a ball and go out into 436 and play out there, right? Like it, no, you don't want them doing that. So you wanna create a safe environment, but I think every parent, I think we know if we're honest, there are also those moments too where you're like, oh, well, if I just create it, I can, I can have this purity. I can have this covenantal faithfulness. My, my kid can be a good Christian if I get them in the right environment. I get them in the right neighborhood. Nope, they can't be friends with those person, right? They gotta have a phone at just the right age that all the social scientists agree on, right? They can't have this app or they can't have this, this app. They gotta get in this school, right? Like all of those things, those are important things to consider but it doesn't matter if you and I operate with all the wisdom in the world, here's the reality. You might be like, I got a perfect bubble around him. Yeah, and guess who's in the bubble? A little sinner, right? Around other little sinners, right? And you're a sinner. And so very quickly we realize like there is no pure environment. I got three words for you. If you think there's a, that you can create a perfect environment that all this will just go swimmingly well, right? Garden of Eden, think about it. Where was the place that had the perfect environment? And then what happened? 
I mean, there's no other environment ever created that was perfect as that. And we still mess that up. So this purity we're looking for, I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, the terrible tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment. And that to change the man, you have nothing to do but to change his environment. That is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise that man fell. It was in a perfect environment that he first went wrong. So to put man in a perfect environment cannot solve his problems. So we pursue our purity and environment, but that doesn't solve it. So we might then opt for something related. And it's like, well, let's go for like a purity in behavior. Let's modify our behavior enough. Maybe then we can ascend the hill of the Lord. A number of years ago, I uh, read um, a, a particular uh, novel um, called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Perhaps maybe you've read this, maybe you've been assigned this. Um, there's lots of themes that we won't necessarily get into right now, but one of the, the themes in this, if, here's, the, here's the quick overview of the story. Some of you are like, maybe that's your summer reading and I can just help you write your paper when you go back. I don't know. But um, uh, this particular novel is, tells the story of this man named Dorian, um, who's this very like attractive man in kind of the prime of, of his life, all right? And he's like, he's young and he's fit and he's successful and all of this. And he, there's a portrait that is made. Literally a painter comes over and paints this portrait of him. And at one point he says to this man who's painting the portrait, oh, that the painting would grow old and I would stay young. And because it's a novel and then the novel can go anywhere the author decides for it to go, that happens. And what you begin to see as the story plays out is as Dorian gets older, he never ages. He continues to have sort of this perfect face and it's the painting that begins to show age. But not just age in a normal sense, but also the contours of a life of immorality because Dorian is not a saint. Dorian is one who is cruel and mean to the point of a girl that he's dating who ends up taking her own life because she's so discouraged by him. He ultimately ends up killing a man. He betrays another. He, he commits, like he blackmails one to help hide the, the evidence of this murder that he's committed. I mean, it's just like, it goes from like, oh, that's dark. Oh, it went to another level of dark and on and on it goes. And there's this interesting thing throughout that Dorian continues to notice as every one of those sins is committed and every now and again, he would kind of muster up the courage to go look at this painting that used to sit proudly like in his living room has now been put into a closet with a sheet over it. He would go and look and it is becoming more and more horrific, more grotesque, more marred. And he comes to this point though, where he's like, ah, I think I can undo it. And he begins acting in a radically different way. He begins to be as moral as he possibly can. He begins to be loving and caring and doing all of these things. And in a rush of excitement, he peels back the curtain one day that has been thrown over the sheet over the portrait, hoping and expecting that it would have changed now for the better because he's been tormented by this. And here's the words, I'll just read you this section. As he unbarred the door, a smile of joy flitted across his strangely young looking face and lingered for a moment about his lips. Yes, he would be good. This is as he's coming up with this idea, right? And the hideous thing that he had hidden away would no longer be a terror to him. He felt as if the load had been lifted from him already. And he went in quietly locking the door behind him as was his custom. And he dragged the purple hanging from the portrait. 
and a cry of pain and indignation broke from him. He could see no change, save that in the eyes, there was a look of cunning and in the mouth, the curved wrinkle of the hypocrite. The thing was loathsome, more loathsome if possible than before. What it's speaking to is when we get this idea that we can ascend the hill, if we just modify our behavior, it's speaking to the corruptness of our heart that we would even think that we could do that. This is why Jesus goes after the religious leaders. You know this, right? Matthew 23, he goes after the religious leaders who are basically bent on like trying to get everybody to modify their behavior. And notice what Jesus says. Like if you have this picture of him that he's just kind of just, you know, strolling across the, you know, Galilean area, and he just has these pithy sort of wise things. We certainly did have wise things to say. He's also in love, confrontational. Look at the hard things that he says in Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. This means a single convert, trying to convert them to your way. And when he has become a proselyte or convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I mean, do you hear the confrontation in that? He's like, oh, great. Yeah, you made another convert and they're twice as much a son of hell as you are. Way to go. You really, you really think you're gonna be able to ascend the hill? You really think this is the way to be in my presence? A few verses later, he says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Friends, what this is doing, have you been humbled lately? This text is meant to not to speak condemnation, but it is meant to help us grapple with the the reality that like on my own, like I'm not pure in heart. I cannot cleanse myself. I cannot modify my behavior enough. I cannot create just the right environment so that we can go be where we're created to be in the presence of the Lord. It's asking us to consider like, what things are you looking to for your justification? What is the thing that you're looking to for your sense of rightness or righteousness? As verse five is gonna speak to, or your sense of vindication. And so we end up in a spot in this Psalm where we begin to see, oh, our attention has to turn. The psalmist is gonna lay out for us so clearly here in love, hey, here's how you can ascend. But it's not about what you do, it's about what the Lord accomplishes. Look with me at verse five, he says this, so he will receive blessing from the Lord. So much of what we get wrong in life is operating as achievers rather than as receivers you will not achieve blessing and make it up the hill. No, you will receive blessing from the Lord, it says. And then it says, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That idea of righteousness, another way to say, to be justified, to have a right standing. It's this Hebrew word, sedekah, that gets paired with its righteousness and justice. It's a right ordering of things. Like all will be right in your life, in the world, but know this, it's not because of what you've done. It literally is, you are a receiver of God's grace. You're not an achiever. It doesn't mean achievement is altogether bad and you shouldn't care about grades or performance reviews or any, any of the things, right? But if that's your ultimate, if your sense of identity is tied to how well you're achieving and performing, it speaks to the idolatry of your heart and reminds you afresh and anew, hey, you actually are not allowed to be in the presence of God. You cannot ascend the hill and neither can I. But it says there's a righteousness 
from the God of his salvation or other translations, from God, your savior. Do you realize he's the one who achieves for you and you are a recipient of his grace? It is God of your salvation. He's the one that gives righteousness. And then when we read verse six, such is the generation, like may it be said of us, such is the generation of those who seek him, like that we would actively seek and pursue God. We would long to be in his presence who seek the face, the God of Jacob. But again, when we read that, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, do not misread it and elevate Jacob to a point of like, oh yeah, we gotta be like Jacob. No, no, no. Jacob was a con artist. Jacob deceived his own father and brother. Jacob was one who experienced the grace of God. That's it. He didn't achieve anything. He didn't deserve to ascend the hill of the Lord, except that God condescended to him. The God was the one who blessed him. God was the one who made him a new man, gave him a new identity, gave him a new name. And so when we read that, know this, let it encourage you. Oh, that's the God we worship. We have a God who has conquered the chaos. And though we continue to behave like Jacob, right? We continue to get things wrong. He is the God who has conquered Satan's sin and death. All of this, my friends, points to the one that we ultimately need. What this text is telling us is it's looking ahead like all of the scriptures to point to Jesus so that we might be rightly humbled. It's a gift to be humbled. Don't hear condemnation. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation, but there is a space for being rightly humbled to know, I don't contribute anything to this. You and I can ascend the hill of the Lord because Jesus ascended the hill outside of Jerusalem that he was put there on a Roman execution device called the cross and his hands and his feet were pierced for your transgressions and mine. This is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God, that you might be justified, that you might be vindicated. It's literally telling us like the God man, Jesus entered into our world. And though he himself deserved to ascend the hill, like that was the thing, like, yes, he's the only one who could. He instead ascended the hill of Calvary so that you and I could be brought into the presence of God. That all of the judgment and the wrath that should have been poured out on me, that should have been poured out on you was instead poured out on Jesus. The one who had the perfect communion with the father for all of eternity is now crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? How this relationship has been like ripped apart. He was cut off so you and I could be brought in. So we might be there standing before the presence of a holy God because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. That's what vindicates us. That's what justifies us. It's not anything you and I would do. It's why the apostle John would write these words. So in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Friends, do not be deceived. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise. And so as we close by looking at the last few verses, in light of this then, there's been this victorious king. Here's our response as subjects to the king. And there's just this picture of a victory parade. What will our response be? And the gates and the doors are sort of personified, right? They're just like, oh my goodness, like the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he's coming in. And it begs the question for you and I, like, will we welcome the king? 
Look with me at these words, seven and eight, nine and 10. They just say the same thing. They're just repeating the same themes. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah, rest, pause, consider these things. Ask yourself, will you welcome the King? Maybe you need to do that for the first time to trust in him. But there's an ongoing surrender and welcome. Lord, I welcome you into my chaos. I trust that you are dealing with this. I welcome you in. I surrender to you. I am your subject. You are the one who you've given me righteousness. You're the one that allows me to be in your presence. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. To welcome the king means to celebrate the king. It is not to make the king into, you know, our little servant to go do what we want. We just offer up some little prayers and say, hey, go and do this little blessing for, for me and get frustrated at him. No, it is a glad surrender to all of who he is, the king is showing up. Are you going to welcome him in? I mean, it's this image almost of like the city can't even contain him. Like the doors are busting at the, the hinges. Like the gates are literally kind of being lifted from their posts. Like, oh my goodness, do you see how amazing this is? Like God is coming. It's the picture of revelation that God is coming to dwell with us. Friends, that's the story that you're part of. Let me read this one quote here from N.T. Wright, the theologian, that speaks of the fact that God came to dwell with us. And you might picture that and you think of Christmas and cute little baby Jesus and all of those things, but he uses some imagery. He uses imagery of like the great storms of the world so that we might rightly see like, oh, yes, there's a tenderness about Jesus, but there's something terrifying in the most redemptive way possible because he's showing up and every knee should bow. He says this, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us unable to cope with saying either of those things condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. The Lord is inviting us the deepness of his grace. Do not live in the shallow world in between. Welcome the king. Embrace the words of Colossians 2, where there's another image of a victory parade. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, every last thing, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and then verse 15, it's a picture borrowed from the Roman culture of a conquering war hero, of a Caesar coming back. And Paul says, it's not the Caesar, it's Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's leading a procession. He's showing up and we get to welcome the king. We praise him. We honor him. We thank him for his grace. And this is the place of depth. This is the place of life. This is what we were made for. So I'm gonna pray for us. After I pray, if you've got elementary kids, you can go get them to bring them back into the service. After we respond through singing, we're gonna partake in the, this meal. Another just reminder, the grace of God, a means of his grace. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, 
we thank you for your constant mercy, your care. We thank you that you are the conquering king, that you have overcome the chaos of Satan's sin and death. And you're in the, the process of remaking a whole world where we get to dwell with you in your presence forever. We've been clothed with the righteousness of your son. So Jesus, we give you praise for that. I pray that we would live as servants who love nothing more than just to welcome the king. So we come with that posture now. So we get ready to, to go to the Lord's table. We sing to you. We do it all from that posture. Lord, we want to welcome you. We want to praise you. We want to experience more of your presence. Would you allow us the, the grace of just even tasting a bit more of that th this morning? Do it for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.